how old is too old to help somebody reproduce? <laughs> that face. Oh, it's this is million. where this is where you said if I just want to say I don't want to answer that, um, <laughs> I could go with that, but that's an impossible thing to answer. I mean, sure. I. Welcome to It's Not Human Sexuality, the show that goes beyond sexuality to reproductive health. Understanding the foundations of reproductive health allows you and the ones you love to make better decisions about your health, mind, and relationships. Joining us today is Dean Marbeck. But when you're sitting with a patient with one embryo, and this is the only one they're ever going to make, and they're done trying, and this is their result, uh, it depends on, the, on what the result is. So I, I do believe patient autonomy should rule over the decision-making process. We can say it really conservatively, half of people who walk in a fertility clinic walk away with less money and nothing to show for it other than pain and misery. And, and that is something where you can say, well, God, that's not right. Dr. B. And I'm Mandy Johnson, and this is It's Not Human Sexuality. So I'm excited to introduce a good friend and colleague, Dean Morbeck. Dean is Scientific Director at Fertility Associates New Zealand, Sunford International Fertility Center Malaysia, and Honorary Lecturer in Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Auckland. He is busy and he really rocks it, right? So also, um, after getting his PhD in physiology, he undertook two research fellowships at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota in 93 and 95. And since then, he has been both teacher and mentor for numerous graduate students, medical students, residents, and fellows. His research is focused on the quality in the laboratory from culture media, protein and oil, to how embryologists grade and decide to use blastocysts. He has served as laboratory director and consultant for various clinics across the USA the last 10 years as an associate professor at Mayo before going to New Zealand. It is a pleasure having you here. And I have to tell a little story though, before we begin, because this is kind of sets the stage of how Dean and I know each other. Okay. Do you remember when we met? 100%. I, I, well, it'll be interesting to see if our stories match because yeah. I was at a national conference where I was with one of my employees and we're, Janelle and I pretty much always just kind of kept to ourselves. And we were sitting at this tiny little table where the breakfast hour, right? and and. This guy just strolls over and he goes, is this chair taken? And I'm thinking, wow. I, I go, no. So he sits down and he just starts chatting us up. And I'm thinking to myself the whole time he's talking, this guy's got guts because I do not put off a vibe like, please come join me. <laughs> <laughs> and anybody who knows me knows that's totally my gig. I'm not, I'm a forced extrovert. I'm mostly an introvert, which is weird, right? Because people think I'm an extrovert. Yeah. And this guy just sits down and starts talking to us. And we, and I said, I know I'm going to be friends with this guy for a long time. No. Is that how you remember it? Well, not exactly. Although, you know, I am a bit of a socializer and you maybe are. I'm a bit like that cat that finds somebody that probably doesn't want to be talked to or, or, or <sighs> sat next to. And yeah. yeah, and then I just go ahead and, and break that down and, and get to know you. Yeah. That's awesome. So 
You were president of the um, call it the CRB at that time, right? Was that true? Uh, not yet. No, that was You're like just as I started to engage with that in a bigger way. Like, yeah, yeah the ABB. So I was um, just a couple of years at Mayo. Prior to being at Mayo in private practice, I wasn't doing really anything with the ABB or AAB at the time. And then that meeting that I went to, I think I presented something on sperm morphology. And that was the start of getting involved more that led to becoming the president of the CRB. And then, uh, yeah, and then eventually moving on to here. Yeah, yeah. All right, help a girl out with all these acronyms. Oh. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. So CRB is the College of Reproductive Biology, which is basically embryologists and andrologists who are part of um, the certification process through this organization called the American Association of Bioanalysts. Okay. And we're board certified by the American Board of Bioanalysts, which is the ABB. So uh, quite a few acronyms on top of all the industry acronyms we have. Oh, absolutely. Right. Well, well, good question, because we're going to talk a little bit about what that means to be an embryologist and an andrologist and all of that. Um, but just one last question, though. Why did you choose our table? I, I, it must have been the fact that we were just like not socializing. I don't recall other than obviously you looked like some very interesting people to talk to. <laughs> Probably was that Wait. I needed a spot to sit down and there maybe, maybe that was any it. Other spots too. Yeah. yeah. That's, you never know. I think that was it. But, Everybody else was standing and he's like, I'm going to sit yeah. down. Well, I, have yeah, to, I have to go with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if I get to go sit down and have a good conversation with interesting people, all the yeah. better. Yeah. It was fun though. We got a good, Janelle and I got a good chuckle out of that, but. I was so glad you did because that started this life, you know, this yeah, known you for a long time. Lucky me. Yeah, and uh, we've had numerous conversations. So it's been fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. So while you were at Mayo, um, you were directing there and you had an IVF lab and all of that, right? Where you, you mm -hmm. were doing all that. And then you got this opportunity to go to New Zealand and you and I talked about what that looked like. You said it was a five-year gig and you really wanted to give it a role. So, I'm so curious because, you know, you've straddled the pond here with respect to mm -hmm. abroad and how that's looked at with respect to assisted reproductive technologies and also being in the United States. Is there one market difference that plays out in that regard with respect to just how labs are run? Uh, yes, it's there is there are quite a number of differences. Uh, when you look at the U.S., it's the most unique in the world in that it's very doctor driven. Um, and so the, the doctors are really, I would say somewhat micromanagers, um, very, you know, involved with the whole process in some cases, totally in the lab as well, uh, in the U S in Australia and New Zealand, uh, we function actually as companies and it's kind of what maybe we're seeing is going to be the future for what's already undertaking in the U.S. with the corporatization of, of uh, healthcare and, uh, and IVF in particular. So because it's a company, it means that we've got a corporate structure that says, well, here's how we're going to function. And we've got protocols and rules and, and it's not the doctors driving the process. The doctors are part of the process. So it's quite a, I, I find it refreshing from a um, collaborative sense because we we know that you know uh, doctors can be great doctors are uh, 
you know, often great in terms of how they practice. They may not be great in terms of how they run a business or lead. Uh, so it's nice to take that role out and just say, well, doctors do the doctoring part, let embryologists do that part. What we've done even more though, is because we make it protocols, a lot of the decisions that we make for a cycle, like, you know, should the stimulation dose change? Should, when, when is the patient ready to be triggered for ovulation and egg, egg retrieval? Those are often very uh, protocol driven and they're consistent. And it doesn't require someone as an MD to make the decision itself. So we've got those protocols all developed where it's a nurse and an embryologist that every day go through and make all the decisions. If anybody falls outside of a normal range, then the doctor gets asked. Um, so it's actually quite a different uh, approach to practice here than it is in the States on that front. That's interesting. So in vitro fertilization and corporate medicine, for us, what we're seeing is, you know, I'm not, I'm not corporate, I'm a small, we have a small uh, cryobank. What we're seeing with respect to widespread corporate fertility centers for us, I feel like is not necessarily a positive thing, but you see it as a positive thing. Well, I'm on the fence with that because I also can look across what they call the ditch here. So the Tasman Sea uh, across the ditch to Australia is where corporate IVF started really. Um, there's okay. two publicly listed companies there that have multinational presence. Uh, and they're publicly listed, which is where you take kind of corporate to the next level, because then you've got shareholders to account to, to oh, yeah. you know, account mm -hmm. for or to, uh, you know, you're responsible to. And that changes how companies changes practice. Everything. And it's where <laughs> we can, we could probably have a good discussion for a long time about the role of, you know, uh, capitalism in healthcare <laughs> and whether there should be, you know, uh, uh, publicly owned healthcare companies. Um, that's another debate. I look at it across the way and I see that the difference too in Australia is they've got uh, what they call welfare for IVF, where it's com almost completely covered, which means it's, a, it's kind of a commodity. And that means a lot of people get in the game because there's so many patients that can just get free IVF or, you know, really subsidized IVF. They still pay a certain amount, but it's like in, in the thousand instead of 10,000 range right, or, or more. So right. because of that, that model isn't representative. So even though it's corporate there, it's such a different economic situation um, that it's it's not one we can compare to from for the U.S., but it still gets back to the same concept I think that you're referring to is when it's corporately driven, if it's a company that is driven at the bottom line and the bottom line is just dollars right. and success rates, let's say, you know, we, yeah. we, we like to have, we, we function with three KPIs. We obviously right. as a company need to need to have a certain amount of uh, um, revenue and, and, you know, profit mm -hmm. so that we can reinvest and continue to, you know, build a better model. Um, the second one is success rates. We got to be good at what we're doing. But the third is we need to have really satisfied patients. And I actually would prefer to consider them as more of customers and look at it more like a model of, uh, you know, the, the service industry in general, like with um, with hotels. And that if, if you want to provide, you know, we can say it really conservatively, half of people who walk in a fertility clinic walk away with less money and nothing to show for it other oh, than yeah. pain and misery. And and that is something where you can say, well, God, that's not right, you know? And and yet 
if you don't have the patient experience in your KPIs and you don't have that experience in your metrics, then your bottom line is still, it's not going to cover that. And so that's where I, I believe corporate can be good. And that's part of how we practice here uh, in that we have, that's one of our three, our three drivers is patient satisfaction. And we keep trying to get better at that. It's a big job though. And it takes a lot to actually give it the, the um, attention it's due because the other two get most of the attention. The patient experience is the one that I see as being the game changer going forward as we also figure out ways to deliver cost more affordably, which is, you know, another challenge for corporate IVF. Other than the disruption of the process and bringing in technology and whatever else, how to make it more affordable using other means. Well, you know, we we talked about this a while ago, a few years ago, how patients are becoming, I don't know if they are becoming more savvy, but they're definitely becoming more resourceful with respect to researching things like what's the pregnancy rate of that center, what's cost, where can they get their drugs, can they go to Mexico to get them, you know, starting to be innovative or lobbying to say, I want my insurance company to cover this, it should be a covered benefit. Because in the Mm -hmm. United States, it's super expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we tell our Patients who are looking at that for using donor sperm or whatever, we're such a small portion of the cost with respect right. to a, a fifteen twenty thousand dollar bill, and then you add a gestational carrier on top of that or an oocyte donor. I mean, it get, it gets pricey, and so when we look at that model and. and the reason Dean is not just talking with his embryology science brain is because he also, I forgot to tell you, went on and got his master's in business administration. So you have your MBA. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was probably a real eye-opener for you because when I'm hearing you talk in this business model, I got to tell you, it's super refreshing because when we first met, you know, I was one of the few people in that group that really owned and operated a business uh, all aspects. So I understood, you know, what that meant, budgets, money, overhead, employees, you know, retirement, whereas a lot of people in your situation work for hospitals or IVF centers, and they don't have to worry about that. They just worry about what they're doing in the lab or what the nurses are doing, et cetera. And I think that that's an important distinction. So it's been fun to hear this come from you. It's exciting. Um, But we're seeing prices coming down, though, because I think there's so many centers out there, right? So now we're talking about the price coming down. Are you seeing that happen as well? No. Now there is because it's what's covered. Because co- yeah. Well, no. So here, that's the other. So when we talk about differences, we're really similar to the U.S., but in a different way. And I don't know what percentage of cycles would be covered by insurance, but it's probably, well, ten to twenty percent. It's maybe you know or higher. Here, it, there's no insurance, but there is a government cover that covers for eligible, you know, they have to meet certain criteria. They get two cycles um, and it's about 40% of our cycles are thus covered by someone else, not self-pay. Um, so nice. the, the difference then is, you know, we don't see any, there's no way to reduce costs the way we currently practice. Um, there are ways to practice differently and reduce costs. And that's what I think is gonna happen next in this field. Um, Australia is doing a low cost model, uh, which is basically an IVF only model where you basically go to a place to get IVF and they just, they've, they've cut it down to bare minimum. It's not necessarily quality IVF. So I've not been a fan of it because it's, 
it's less stimulation, which is can be good, but when you kind of do it blanket and you're still paying a fair amount, you know, there they're not because again, it's subsidized by the government. So it's just, it's, it's not a good comparator for the low cost model. Are they but not there are getting low cost the results? Ones in the US, right? They're not getting the results. Okay. Although they're finally, this is the first year coming up where they're going to have clinic specific reporting. They've never had clinic specific results available, but they've finally been able to get that one across. So another another component I think that the U.S. has been slow on the uptake with respect to in vitro fertilization and embryo transfer is the number of embryos they transfer, right? Mm. So historically, we've said, I'll put everything back or, you know, she's 40 years old, let's give her eight embryos and we had Octomom and, you know, all of that stuff. And we were really slow to self-regulate because there's no regulation about that in the United States about trans you can transfer as many as you want I don't know if anybody knew that but <laughs> um, there is sort of a self-regulation and the American Society of Reproductive Medicine rec the SRM recommends you know one or two depending on age and history but you all have that right it's a regulation right Actually, it's about not. how many embryos but, you can transfer no. um, I, I, hmm, it's a great question so I don't know the regs. There is something here called the HART Act, so the Human Reproductive Technology Act from 2004, which covers a lot of this. But because I got here and we transfer only one 95% of the time in all patients, regardless of age, and two, you know, rarely and three, incredibly rarely, uh, it's not something that I'm aware of it being a law. What I do know is when... Uh, when the industry here went to try to get more funding from the government, they said, well, you know, we'll do single embryo transfer. So it wasn't exactly a law, but it was an agreement. And and it's something that Australia and New Zealand have kind of led the way along with the Scandinavian yeah. countries in saying, we're going to do single embryo transfer. Um, you know, freezing blastocysts is great. It, it maintains the, you know, viability very well. So uh, there's no reason to put two in when you can do one and one. Um, so I, I gave a talk at ASRM last year on single mirror transfer, trying to convince more people in the U.S. to see it that way. Um, unfortunately, in the U.S., using PGTA as the big hammer to try to get single mirror transfer, which, um, it, yeah, it works to get single mirror transfer, but it adds cost and I think is not always harmless. Oh, this is why we're friends. I got. I got to tell you. So, for our audience, define PGTA for okay. for our audience. Yeah. So, uh, the, the another acronym for us to cover: pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. Aneuploidy is when a embryo has the wrong number of chromosomes. So, the common one you would know is trisomy eighteen or twenty-one Down syndrome, um, and. And obviously, we would like to avoid transferring an embryo that has uh, the wrong number of chromosomes. It's either going to potentially result in a in an affected child or a miscarriage or just not implant. So by taking embryos like that out of the pool, that that's actually a desirable thing. And it's intuitively obvious that if we can test for that, we should do that. Uh, it turns out that you, you have to wait till day five, six, or seven when an embryo is at a blastocyst stage. And then you, you take five to 10 cells from what becomes the placenta. So it's not actually taking cells from what becomes the fetus. And 
that that makes it seem even more attractive. And then we have those numbers of cells and we can amplify the DNA and test for the number of chromosomes. So that all sounds like a slam dunk, a no brainer. Why wouldn't you do that? Um, it turns out that the, the randomized studies that have been done, there's the first proof of concept studies that were done, used all very good prognosis patients. Every single patient got an embryo to transfer which is a key thing, that that means that every patient was had good enough embryos to get one to biopsy and to get a euploid, euploid being normal number of chromosomes. And so that study was great in showing it was working, but it's not representative of our population of patients who have often only one or two embryos to work with at all. Sometimes they won't make it to blastocyst and sometimes they won't have a euploid. On top of that, they may have a blastocyst, so that's day five, six or seven embryo, that is of low quality or low grade, as we like to call it. And then they may not have five to 10 cells to spare. So if you're gonna just blanket approach and say, we're gonna biopsy everybody all the time because we just believe this, this amazing technology is gonna work, the reality is not all blastocysts are gonna tolerate it. And the studies aren't out there to show this, except that the one RCT that's come out since those initial ones has shown that it doesn't provide any benefit for young patients, which is mind-boggling. It should provide a benefit for young patients. If anything, it looks like it decreases their chance. And I would say it decreases their chance because they're probably not getting to a transfer because they're not getting blastocysts or they're not getting a euploid or they're getting you know results sometimes that aren't conclusive. So there's, a, there's messiness in the process. And when you look at the SART data, you're like, wow, that's not helping young patients. It definitely helps older patients. And I'll just finish, you know, as, as an example, one patient we had at Mayo, this one I use over and over again, 43-year-old had had miscarriages with affected pregnancies. She went through three stimulations. She did have good ovarian reserves, so that means she could make a lot of eggs and get a lot of embryos. But she got 33 embryos, 33 blastocysts, and she got two euploids. And she put back each one individually and got two healthy children at 43 and 45 years old. But that, imagine if she tried to go through all 33 of those embryos, because with only two being actually normal. So, um, so that's where it's really beneficial. But she's in, you know, we like to talk about different segments of the population. She's like in the 1%. Oh, for people, sure. 43 with that many eggs. It, it's unheard yeah. of. Yeah, that's unheard yeah. of. Plus also this type of technology, while it's improving, isn't perfect. And you might have an embryo that is normal, that is classified as abnormal and is and is tossed, you know? And so there's this ethical dilemma of patients saying, I don't care, I want you to transfer my non-normal embryo. And where do you, what do you think about that? Do you think patients should have the autonomy to choose that knowing all the, all the ramifications that could be involved in a potential, a potential right. non-normal embryo? Right. So it gets a little complicated. I believe the accuracy of the testing when you get a really good result. So we kind of, when we get a result back, we either get no result because the DNA just didn't amplify or there wasn't DNA. We get a mixed result where it could be mosaic, which um, mosaic means it's got some cell, the definition of mosaicism, it has some cells that have the right number of chromosomes and some cells that have an error in their chromosome number. But we can't say whether it's actually mosaicism. And so the ASRM has come out um, at the end of last year with a guidance on mosaics and actually to call it uh, 
intermediate copy number because it's not, we can't say it's mosaicism in a clinical sense. We can say that it's got an intermediate number of copies of chromosomes and that just confuses doctors and patients alike. But those 100% should be transferred or, you know, obviously the patient has the ability and often will transfer those if, if that's what they have. When we get into the ones that have a clear, very strong signal that says there was the wrong number of chromosomes, um, we know that the error rate is very low, but it's not zero. So across the population, because the error rate's so low, you could say, well, you know, we just trust that we go with it. But when you're sitting with a patient with one embryo, and this is the only one they're ever going to make, and they're done trying, and this is their result, uh, it depends on, the, on what the result is. So I, I do believe patient autonomy should rule over, you know, the um, decision-making process. As we do in the U.S., we give them that option. Uh, we do here as well. So the one thing that I would, you know, if I were to say the one way that people are approaching that, some clinics are saying, well, if there's a monosomy, so it means only one chromosome of a chromosome number five, nine, whatever, um, that that's not likely to implant because you don't see monosomies implant and become miscarriages very often other than maybe 16. Uh, and so that means that you could transfer without worrying too much about a risk. Right. And so if it's going to implant, it's probably normal. Otherwise it won't implant. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I don't know if a lot of centers in the United States actually are giving patients autonomy to choose if they want to transfer a non-euploid embryo. I, I, we hear a lot from patients that they're, they have to really, they're in battles with the center to do that. Um, so I, I'm not sure if everybody follows your model, which would be ideal if they did, but I don't think they do. I think we always try to subscribe to the model of protecting patients from themselves, or maybe we're doing the right thing. But we all know that we don't know everything. And right. again, it's all the legalities of it. So there's the legality part, which I think obviously can be covered with mm -hmm. informed consent. Um, there's also the, you know, the reality is that clinics are judged by their success rates. Mm -hmm. yeah. and you can't discount that that could be a reason not to transfer some of these. Um, I just, I know of only a handful that actually advocately say, yeah, we'll transfer, um, uh, you know, a, a known affected embryo. And I'm guessing it's mostly these monosomies that they would consider. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of leads us to another uh, level of ethics that we discuss in this world of infertility and fertility. And, and that's of how old is too old to help somebody reproduce? <laughs> that face. Oh, it's this, is where, this is where you said, if I just want to say, I don't want to answer that, um, <laughs> I could go with that. But you can't. That's an impossible can. thing to answer. I mean, sure. I, you know, we struggle with this. We, I think everybody in this field struggles with it, especially because we see differences in ages, often older partners, the men are older and the younger wife. Um, there's clearly a, a risk around pregnancy for women over 50. So that's a threshold that the industry's pretty well on board with. Um, you know, there's clearly a threshold when using their own eggs is not viable. So that's a different story. You know, once you get to 45, uh, you could start saying it's futile to try with your own eggs. 
But otherwise, I mean, you know, we've seen 60, 70 year old men and women become parents through this technology. Uh, we also see people do this as sing singles. You know, there's plenty of mm -hmm. single individuals that go through. So that raises the you know question: Well, if, if a couple has an average age that's not average, but a combined age of no more than one ten, um, mm -hmm. you know, that's two fifty-five year olds. Uh, but once you start seeing a sixty-five year old or a seventy-five year old, you have that balance to say, well, let's make sure that one of the parents is young enough to be around for that child. So having the interest of the children in place is, is big. There's another issue around older patients and, and genetics and potential uh, mutations. And uh, that's, that's a whole, it's still a small relative risk, but it is definitely an increased risk for men uh, that have an increased risk. But we risk know of, that. But like, we know mm -hmm. that. We know this is true for, for men. This has been, uh, this is repeatable data with respect to men over the age of 40 are showing uh, more chromosome breaks, uh, higher risk of ADHD babies, uh, higher risk of schizophrenia trigger, um, manic depression. There was a higher risk of autism. Is that and autism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is spectrum, yeah. this is not folklore. I this is no. this has been scientifically yeah. evaluated, which is interesting because we talk about women saying oh, you're too old to reproduce, and historically we've always said, well, as long as a man is producing sperm, he can still father pregnancies, and then. The, then that always is the question of just because we can, should we, you know, yeah. and I know, and I'm here, you, we all struggle. Like, what do you do with right. that? And, and nobody right. wants I mean, to say it goes no back to autonomy. Right. And, and yeah. the fact is, um, you know, it's always hard because you can say, well, these are, th these are, there's plenty of people doing this on their own without needing help. And so it's their right to do that on their own. And then when they need help, are we going to police that, uh, you know, I, I do want to point out with, with the genetic risk for age, it's not a, a massive risk. It's an increased relative risk that isn't small. It's not discountable. So we should still be considering it, but it's not like scary risk on a, you know, 10, 20% kind of a, you know, level. Uh, nonetheless, I do think, well, we struggle with it. And I, you know, we don't have an answer for how best to manage that. I think we we always should be thinking about what's the best interest of the child. And even though everyone thinks they're going to live forever, uh, as long as there's one parent, since we are very happy with having single parent families, uh, as long as one of those two individuals is young enough to be around for that kid to get to college, that's kind of the limit that I think is reasonable. Yeah. That makes sense. I Huh? So that makes sense. I mean, that's... it does. But I, and then you say, well, I could get, I could die in a car crash tomorrow, blah, 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 all that stuff. And all those things are true, but we all know that um, it gets harder as we get older to be around, yeah. you know, yeah. old, you know. Yeah. The actuarial yeah. tables for 70 and 80 year olds is much um, different than for car crashes for 30 year olds. <laughs> yes. It is. Absolutely. I yes. hear that. Um, so, you know, in the news, well, we've talked a lot and have exchanged um, thoughts about how FDA regulates the United States. What is your equivalent? Do you have an equivalent? So <clears throat> New Zealand is, is basically the size of Colorado in geography and, and in population. <laughs> so it's, uh, and we happen to have uh, a, pretty 
We've got a, a, a strong structure around the regulations for what can be done. Um, we have an ethics committee that it's called the ECART. So there's an ethics committee for assisted reproductive technology that actually reviews the more complicated cases when people want to go outside of norms. Um, but when it comes to regulating, when I think of FDA, when you bring that question up, I think of, okay, what, what are all the testing that needs to be done? What's the question there? The quarantining, all of that. That's actually got very little, there, there's, there's, that's not regulated here. So it's on our best, our best um, you know, uh, approach to follow best industry practices around that. And that's how we practice. You probably bring a lot of that, though, from the United States um, with your experience. I mean, they already here. had a lot of it here. Yeah. 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 But we, but we have flexibility. So like when we say, well, actually, you know, six month quarantine versus three month quarantine for different things. Those are things we can flexibly do. We can't. Yeah. <laughs> no. No. Um, so let's move on to uh, this new stuff that's been in the media a little bit with the extended tissue culture of embryos in a dish past what originally we were doing or what was considered allowable. What's considered allowable. Yeah. That has lifted. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm going to be, <laughs> this is I a mean, real hot topic because it talks about culturing just for our reader, our listeners, it talks about taking embryos and culturing them further out to where they might start looking like a fetus. Not a human right. fetus. Like this was done in mice, I think right. is what, yeah. Well, I, yeah. Um, so it's embryoids is the yeah. term that was used because it's actually using stem cells, um, not taking an actual embryo and, and growing it out to that place, but actually creating something to grow and to see what this development look like beyond 14 days. Uh, and so it offers, you know, uh, some research avenues that is you know, probably could be quite useful, um, but opens up ethical questions. Mm -hmm. What are those, do, you know? And this this is where, um, it's an interesting place. I, so it was just Easter here, and we had, in New Zealand, which is rather um, non-religious as a country, uh, we, we do have Good Friday and Easter Monday as a national holiday. Uh, <laughs> so a four-day weekend. <laughs> <laughs> um, so interesting, but mm -hmm. so that so there there is less of the fervor um, as we see in the U.S. around um, right to life, around personhood. Um, what when does life begin? Um, so I I'm you know able to be in a different place here, and actually it, it's not talked about. So probably what you may be seeing in the U.S. I'm guessing is maybe a little bit more attention to this than we are here. So I read oh. about it when it came out, and um, I just kind of said, oh, that's interesting, and I moved on. Right, because we're scientists in that field, and we think it's interesting, but then it leads to all those, like you said, the, the dilemma of personhood and growing fetuses outside the body and science right. fiction and all of that stuff. Yeah. But, it's, um, yeah, a long way. Of, I mean, as far as, far as something that's worrisome, um, I think we're a long ways from that. Obviously, every step we take brings us closer. So, uh, but at this point, it's not worrisome to me what's being done. People oh. are picturing the Matrix. That's what 
people are picturing the Matrix. <laughs> yeah, human baby picturing the Matrix. And, yeah. yeah, it's not yeah. that. <laughs> uh, first of all, it's really expensive to do a lot of, I mean, it's just almost cost prohibitive, but I agree with you. But that kind of leads to another concept that I think people don't understand, but they read about, they read the headlines, right? And that's CRISPR. So have you seen the new headline about uh, CRISPR being used? Well, I'll let you explain CRISPR in a minute, but it's being used to treat sickle cell. I did not see that. Okay. Yeah, it just came out. So go ahead and explain CRISPR. Well, uh, I'm not a it's, CRISPR expert. Okay. Uh, so I, I mean, I, I could give you my two cents on what it is, sure. but what we it, can fill it in. Sure. Okay, I mean, it's yeah. just a it's just a genetic um, modification. So they do it, it the way I understand it. CRISPR is where they evaluate a gene sequence in. Uh, an embryo or a fetus, and they go in and they take out the defective read of that gene and they put in the correct read so that that defective embryo is not is, afflicted with yeah. that disease like Tay-Sachs or sickle cell or something like that. Is that your interpretation? Correct. Yes. Yep. So yep. people, that's pretty crazy, right? Yep. That's pretty intense. And a lot of it hasn't been real positive because <laughs> some of the outcomes have been not helpful uh, there have been some bad outcomes w well, within the that, yeah. yeah i mean actually it's it's just so early so we have yeah, a chinese absolutely. researcher that jumped on it and mm -hmm. and actually used this totally before that he should have and it was for screening against susceptibility to hiv um or to aids uh and it, so it was kind of a strange application of it just because they wanted to show that it could do it really uh but, and and I don't know that there's much like scary bad things that happen. There's more the theoretical and also some demonstrated side actions of this. So this is an enzyme that goes in and cuts, like you said, you know, basically replaces the, the wrong uh, code, puts the right one in at that spot. If it only does that and that's all it does, that's great. But there's continues to be reports of some... Uh, other actions that aren't expected. And so until this is done well, like reproducibly really well in animals and different animals, uh, it shouldn't even be discussed about as an option for humans. I mean, I it's agree. just ludicrous. The, that uh, that fellow is in hiding now, isn't he? <laughs> well, he was in prison and yeah, who knows? In China, you don't know where you end up, yeah. What, what do you think are you know, we've been around a long time. We've seen a lot of progression with respect to, well, I, I've been around a long time. I'm, you're a spring chicken, so. No, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> you're pointing out that we've been around a long time, but yes. <laughs> well, if I've known you as long as I've been around, then it's been a long time. Yeah. But we've seen the progression of what this field of assisted reproductive technology has gone through. And what, what do you see on the horizon? I mean, what what do you is it is is the status quo like going to be just what we talked about earlier, where we're just going to have to change our business model, and everything else will just fall into place with respect to outcome and benefit and cost, or are we going to just keep trying to tweak it, tweak it, tweak it, tweak it, so that it just keeps the cost high? I mean, you see what I mean? Like, are, are we at a level where we have a pretty good idea handle on the tissue culture part and developing good embryos and getting good pregnancy rates way better than we were 
in the 80s and 90s. So where do we where do we just stop and focus on that? Because the end end game is to have people the takeaway baby rate, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when do we just do we do we say that? Do we say, gosh, you know, we have this down and we just really perfect that, or do we just keep trying to tweak it and tweak it and tweak it? Well, I think I think there's parallel paths that are uh, emerging or that have been going. Um, one could argue that we're hitting a glass ceiling of, of what's possible with the gametes that we're getting. And that's really what, you know, we do have a limitation there that we don't, don't get enough gametes and particularly eggs, <clears throat> or we get ones that are already, uh, you know, irre- irreversibly uh, damaged in a way that can't develop normally. And so, you know, that's a whole nother, say, um, path of saying, how can we get better gametes? Um, and, and that's potentially, it's a, it's a little ways down the path and speculative how well we could do that. So if we just focus on what patients bring to the table, then we say, well, we, when you look at under 35 year olds in the US, it's getting about where six to seven out of 10 go home with a baby, maybe not on the first transfer, but from that one retrieval. Um, you know, six is, is been pretty consistent. Seven is where we're at, um, whether we can get to eight, whether we can close that gap completely, or if that's due to the gametes, the other part of it is the dropout rate for patients. There's so many different reasons why patients will continue on. So that eight out of 10 may have a component. That's just the patient split. Um, they've decided it's not worth it. They can't afford it. There's many things. So there's other things that are, aren't the science that could improve that uh and that needs to be worked on that's you know where the glass ceiling hasn't been hit older patients uh there's this fine line we're walking between you know testing and trying to find euploid embryos um, in cases where they don't have a lot and then also the finances and the emotional burden of going through multiple cycles so i think that whole part the experience is where we can see gains made I don't really expect from a, you know, innovation side that we're going to change much in the lab that we're kind of, we are, as you said, we're pretty, we've got it down pretty well. We might get little bitty increment gains in in how good we can, you know, get fertilizations, get blastocysts that are euploid, but that's a pretty robust system now. the next thing that's going to be coming is is ways to automate that and automate it in a way that makes it more affordable and and more consistent across all clinics because that's the other thing we we don't point out is that unfortunately still there's pretty disparate results across clinics it's been raised a lot in the last 10 years really in the US it's come up a lot to where the average is much higher and most clinics are doing quite well in their outcomes but they're still low performers and that's not acceptable. I mean, I just, it's sad that patients, that's where they go and they don't know that, or maybe that's our only chance is with a clinic that doesn't do well. Right. And then, but, but what I liked what you said earlier was, you know, there are parameters where six out of 10, seven out of 10 people leave with a viable term pregnancy. And, and then we have a dropout rate, right? And I think that doesn't change. That dropout rate has been pretty steady. 
across the decades of about and and like you said people change their mind they adopt they foster they split up uh, what whatever whatever happens but you're never going to be 100% that's just not going to happen um i think the other thing to keep in mind and i know that you think about this too is there are some centers that actually take all the tough cases and they might be really good centers, but their pregnancy rate is going to be lower because these are people who maybe have failed at numerous other centers and and they go to see this one center that maybe specializes in that More population. So their so, numbers aren't going to yeah. be high. Yeah. And I think right. so we have to, those are important distinctions when we look at success rates are what is their population load? If they're only seeing 21-year-olds mm -hmm. and their rate is low, we have a problem. Mm -hmm, but if mm -hmm. they're seeing above 40 multiple failed cycle people, couples, you have to take that right. into consideration. Oh, yeah. But that's why it's age stratified when you look at the yeah. results. I mean, but they could be getting repeated failure under 35s that are, you know, yeah. that are more challenging. It's not common to see a clinic get a lot of that. I mean, it's more, more likely that they're going to say, we'll take on the older patients that other people say we're not even going to put time into because it eats up space in our clinic. You know that these patients who've already tried and don't have good reserve and don't have a good chance of making it, they will find a place to go. So those are there are clinics like that, but you'll see that they have very high numbers of over forty year olds, and the success rates are low. But if you look at their under thirty five, they they should be quite similar. I mean, within a band, there's a range that, you know, I don't know what that band is, but it's, um, it shouldn't be twenty percent or thirty percent. It should be forty percent or more for under thirty five. Right. Well, and, and then I want to end on this because I think this is an important thing that we need to start thinking about, which I've always thought about forever, is you said, how how do we make for more fertile or better gametes that come that walk through the door? And as you know, the, big in the news with the male fertility decline and um, estrogen disruptors. And so when we talk about all of those things, um, maybe we're looking at the wrong end of the cow to fix and we should be looking at, you know, epi epigenetics and yeah. Diet, exposure, lifestyle. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so, no doubt that that's, that's a component and it's just a question of how, um, you know, accessible our solutions and how, you know, getting it, it's, you know, one of the things that we like, that I like to promote is personalization through the fertility journey, but it's, it's very different. And maybe, maybe with big data, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of machine learning to be able to sort problems that are so complex that have so many data points, but maybe with that, we could actually figure out a personalized approach to gamete optimization to say, well, here's the factors that are involved with, you know, different different characteristics and and what can we target specifically for individuals? Otherwise, it's just a blanket, you know, antioxidants, you know, healthy lifestyle, weight, don't smoke, you know, minimize drink. There's Stuff a lot of those. Everybody already knows. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean <laughs> that the, takes effort. The, right. But then the endocrine disruptors, that's a whole nother deal because they're freaking everywhere. Yes. And, and I mean, you know, we have doctors telling our patients, you know, don't take the, the receipts from the cash register because those are laden with it. And, you know, 
And it's like, okay, that's one thing. And then there's makeup. There's so many things. It's well, as you're drinking out of your plastic water bottle and, you know, transporting your Mm -hmm. food in a Tupperware bin and heating it up in the microwave. And, you know, I just, and drinking NutraSweet and, you know, it's like, (laughs) there's so many things. And, and unfortunately, you know, our population that we see, you know, they, sometimes it's just, they just want that magic pill to make it happen for them, right? Instead of putting in the work, like it took a long time for centers to even address obesity with their patients. They didn't even want to talk about it and say, you should lose some weight first before we do this, you know, cause that might help with your PCOS. It wasn't talked about, you know, and um, I, I think we lost a lot of ground there. I think we're gaining it back, but you know, being too thin or being too heavy, these are all, these can be factors, you know? And so I think what my goal is, and I see, I'm kind of hearing this, we need to treat the patient as a whole and not just as a reproductive center. Right. Right. No, there's no doubt that there are, you know, times where you'd say, well, if we don't treat this patient, if we tell them they need to lose weight first, that this is benefit, they're going to go somewhere else. And that's a reality. But if, ever, if everyone starts singing from the same songbook you know then they'll say no this is this is how we practice which is you know i we're we're lucky here because we can do that and actually um we've got you know part of the public funding is a bmi limit oh really interesting mm-hmm. wow which okay. is a whole nother can of worms that would because, never happen here <laughs> no no well never. no you would lose you would lose half of the population this is for the public funding though this isn't they can go through uh, and pay themselves, but the government won't fund for a BMI over 32. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I, I wish they'd use percent body fat, but I'll definitely go with BMI. That's a good start. Um, yeah, that would, first of all, we don't have government funding for, nobody no. takes Medicaid here, so, you know, um, for IVF. And no one would, I, that would just be unheard of. I, I would, it would be an interesting concept though. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's one that, you know, if they want, so they can come up and they'll, they'll be like, they have two choices. They either lose weight to get funded or they go and pay themselves. So we don't say they can't do IVF. So that's, we don't have a limit in that regard, but yeah. we don't have the same obesity problem that exists in the U S. Yeah. So our yeah, average who does? is, <laughs> Affluence, you know, (laughs) it's everywhere. Um, and uh, yeah, well, you know, this has been fun. What do you, what are you, what are your, what do you think? You think you're going to come back to the U S that's a great question. If you were to ask me, um, a year ago, it's, it's really not looking good, but now it looks better. Um, (laughs) You know, there's a lot of things that have changed. So if the right opportunity comes along to allow me to, to uh, <laughs> the right opportunity to further what I see needs to happen. So I, I came to New Zealand because I did pretty much everything I could do at Mayo Clinic. It's a small center. It's a great, obviously great medical center, but it's not a reproductive hub because um, it's only 100,000 people in Rochester, Minnesota. So I realized as doing my MBA that that I needed to get on a bigger stage to have more influence to try to improve outcomes. And that's what I've been able to do here for five years. And I'm, 
looking now at you know what's next for me and if an opportunity comes up in the U.S. where I can change, kind of disrupt the practice a bit because um, I'm not interested in running more clinics like I've been doing because this model is this model. I believe we need to have a different model. And that's that's where if something comes along that way, um, I could be coming back. That'd be great. We'd love to have you. Mm. Well, <laughs> be great to be back. Like, I have yeah. to say, I learned a lot tonight, personally. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> yeah. When when the, when those reproductive biologists get together, they geek out on it. Yeah, I should have been taking notes. I'm like, what? Yeah. what? Yeah, well, luckily, you're recording this, so you got it. Yeah, there. There's that. I can always re-listen. Yeah. Plus, I talk about it all the time. But yeah, well, thanks for your time. It was good to see you. I miss you. Yeah, well, likewise. Awesome. Good. Well, maybe next year we will have uh, another conference in person and you can join us at breakfast. That'd be great. Truly, I learned a lot. Like that was, um, I don't know a lot about IVF and and all of that. Your guys' biology world is not not stuff I know about. So that was really interesting to learn so much about all the different aspects that go into, um, you know, yeah. helping somebody reproduce. Like I didn't really ever think about the business model or the, oh, yeah. you know, the, the quote unquote politics involved in all of it. And just there's so much that I would have never thought of. Yeah, there is a lot. And what's, and one of the things that Dean didn't really touch on i mean he touched on it and i knew what he was talking about because i know the difference but what he was talking about as a collaborative unit in um new zealand when he gets to make decisions with the nurse in the lab that's kind of unheard of in the united states so in the in the lab you have the lab it has it's what we call the back office and the front office front office is all the administrative stuff and money and back office is the nursing clinical laboratory stuff and then you have the lab and a lot of times the doctors will change their uh, simulation protocol and it can really affect the quality of the eggs or oocytes so that means the lab then might have a failed cycle but they don't know that this is what's going on right because right? so, the, they're not all talking and mm -hmm. so i think one of the biggest things that dean was getting at is this collaborative model where the embryologists have and they're not actually even referred to as embryologists. I think he told me they're referred to as um, scientists, which is really cool, right? So uh, so there's that kind of that different disconnect in the United States with all the compartmentalization. And But that business model is kind of important, right? So yeah. corporate medicine here is different than what he's talking about there. Oh, for sure. I mean, it just... Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of differences from what he was yeah. saying. Yeah, but it's expensive. I mean, it can be cost prohibitive for a lot of people in the United States, and it's typically not covered by insurances. And um, and there's always these ethical statements that are coming out about just because you can do something, should we? And how do we feel about age restrictions? You know, because you can have somebody who's 65 and use a donor egg and get pregnant, right. and so. You have to think about, like he says, are we thinking about just the patient because they want to birth a pregnancy? What does that mean for the child? I, I liked what he had to say about, you know, looking at the the needs of the child. I mean, is, is there going to be a parent around to to parent that child? I mean, uh, at yeah. least until college. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, I thought that was a 
I can see where that'd be a hard question to answer, but I thought that was a, a really good way to, to look at it at least. Yeah, and I, I think we have to ask the question, are we allowed to deny people care in this realm? I mean, one of the reasons a lot of insurance companies will deny coverage is because they feel that it's an elective, mm -hmm. right? And for some people having children is not an elective for them. Yeah. It's something that they need to feel completed. And so that's very, can be very insulting for them, sure. right? To say that this is an elective and you well, and, and it's something it. they feel it's they not need. like threatening not having children is not like no threatening. but it's something they feel they need and, and want to do yeah 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 interesting stuff for sure This podcast was created to promote Look Both Ways and the textbook written by Dr. Cairo. Look Both Ways is a nonprofit organization based in Loveland, Colorado, with a mission to educate our youth about their reproductive health to make informed decisions for their future. We do this by educating the educators through professional development, and we also put on free conferences for both teens and parents of teens. Textbooks used in schools are donated by Look Both Ways to eliminate the money obstacle for schools interested in piloting or adopting our curriculum and textbook. As a nonprofit, we are always fundraising and accepting donations. For more information about Look Both Ways, our fundraising efforts, getting a textbook donated to you, or to make a donation, please visit us at lookbothways.us. That's L-O-O-K-B-O-T-H-W-A-Y-S dot U-S. This podcast was produced by Peach Islander Productions in Fort Collins, Colorado. This is Dr. B. And Mandy Johnson wishing you well. Be sure and catch all our episodes of It's Not Human Sexuality on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts.